U.S. Japan Alliance and Global Tech Competition. Yuka Koshino is a research fellow at the UK-based t- think tank Double I Double S, and Akira Igata is a man of many titles, among which includes executive director at the Center for Rulemaking Strategies, a think tank affiliated with Tama University in Tokyo. Co-hosting today with me is Josh Fit of CNAS. This podcast is part of a series on global tech alliances producing coordination with the Center for a New American Security. Welcome to Shadow Talk, everyone. Happy to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. So let's start with the little recent Japan-China history. I am looking at a graph from 2002 to 2020 that Pew did polling the Japanese population on attitudes towards China. And there have been a fair number of zigs and zags in this chart. We start at 42% dislike and are now in 2020 at 86%, which is, uh, I think a global high in terms of the percent of people who have a negative view of China. Yuka, mind walking me through a little bit of this recent history and what have been the major events that have swung these numbers back and forth over time? Sure. I think um, we should maybe go back a decade ago. And really one of the key highlight event was the 2010 Senkaku incident when the Chinese trawler basically has a collision with the Japanese Coast Guard's um, patrol boat. After that, because the Japanese government detained the the captain of the Chinese ship, there was a lot of assertive actions made by the Chinese government, including halting the rare earth export to Japan. And that was also the timing when Chinese economy surpassed Japan's economy. So that was really a key point to show what impact this Chinese um, rapid growth of economy and um, military power could mean for Japanese politics and, and diplomacy and security. And also after that, there has been increasing number of Chinese boats and um, activities around the Senkaku Islands. And that was also when the time that the Chinese security threat has been much more vocally um, discussed in the Japanese policy debate. But then if you look at it, there's also this term when the unfavorability towards China has been decreasing around 2018. Maybe one of the key events that uh, maybe I can raise is the Prime Minister Abe's visit to China in October 2018, during the 40th anniversary of the conclusion of the Treaty of Peace and Friendship between Japan and China. So there was this rapprochement um, period under Prime Minister Abe, and he was really trying to make it one of his diplomatic big goals to invite Xi Jinping to Japan. But still, as I mentioned, the underlying security conditions um, have not really changed or improved. And I think that's the reflection of this very high unfavorability by the Japanese people towards China. I think that the Japanese politicians are now in a basic agreement that uh, Xi Jinping's Tokyo visit, it would probably not happen this year due to various reasons. But one of them is probably because of this deteriorating relationship between uh, Japan and China. For more on this, uh, Ezra Vogel wrote a book called Japan and China Facing History, which takes you all the way back to the Tang Dynasty. (laughs) He passed away before I was able to get him on the show, which is something I will spend the rest of my life regretting. But um, another moment that that book did a really good job looking into is reform and opening and Japan's role that it played. It was part a, uh, a a bit of guilt for what happened in the first half of the 20th century, as well as a major business opportunity for a lot of these Japanese firms to be really some of the first ones in alongside with the early folks from Taiwan who were making investments to really kick off industrialization in, in China. So there was actually a, a lot of goodwill in the 70s and 80s, which has slowly but surely been eroding over time with respect to how the Japanese look at China. 
I think looking back at the the past decade, it's clear that the Senkaku Islands are, are a flashpoint in the U.S.-Japan relationship, as you mentioned, triggering massive spikes in disapproval in 2010, also 2012. During the pandemic, there was definitely this notion of China probing in the security hotspots in Asia, including the Senkaku Islands, but also between the China and India borders. And that was a time, I think, that then Defense Minister Kono has been very vocal, actually. And he was one of the very important politicians who has very much tried to feature what China is actually doing in Senkaku Islands. He was tweeting a lot, he was calling out China a lot, and he was also creating lots of Twitter accounts for different self-defense force branches. And also, I think the defense on white paper in 2020 was also a really important document that highlighted the various that really featured China's assertiveness, not just in the Senkaku Islands, and but also in the new domains and even during China's effort to change the narrative um, of the pandemic. So I think that really shows that in a way, pandemic has facilitated Japan's effort to really feature what China is actually doing. And maybe that could be a turning point of, of Japan's kind of attitude towards China as well in the security front. If you look at Japanese uh, media, Japanese newspapers, social media, all of it, uh, I think Japanese people are well aware of the developments happening here. I would also like to raise another, maybe more, a poll focusing more on domestic Chinese and Japanese nationals called Gendo NPO. A poll by Gendo NPO in 2020. I think the top three reasons for the negative views towards China was really around the security issues, which also shows that the Japanese public is very much aware of the security activities conducted by China. So the top three were one, the first one was on the intrusions around the Senkaku Islands. And the second was China not abiding by the international rules and norms. And then the third was also the actions in the South China Sea. It shows that the Japanese public is thinking beyond the Senkaku Islands, but also very much aware of um, their actions in the South China Sea as well. So Akira, how is the Japanese government thinking about its technological relationship with China today? Obviously, there's pressure from both sides, right? From the American side and the Chinese side. From the American side, there's, of course, the concerns over security issues and economic security issues, which is that China has now basically raised its military civil fusion from just a a policy into a strategy and saying that any technology that they can use to modernize PLA would be used for that purposes. And there are many uh, Japanese companies which doesn't consider itself as a company that has any dual-use technology or military technology. But in fact, if you look at, for example, automobile companies, they are have very highly technological AI capability or visual recognition technologies. And these can be used easily for UAVs and for militarizing some of these capabilities in the PLA. So the Americans want Japan to stop the export of certain dual-use capabilities to China. And of course, Japanese government wants to do that as well. But it's always uh, difficult to determine which portion of the technology or the product itself needs to be regulated so that it doesn't go to other countries. Because sometimes the interpretation of emerging technologies that have dual use capability is different between countries. And Japan needs to make sure that Japan's understanding is at least uh, on the same page with the Americans. But then on the other hand, Japan has to keep its business relationship with China because China is a large market. Japanese companies have much of the supply chains in China. So if they take too much of a hardline stance towards China, then of course they face the risks of being countered through Chinese economic statecraft. So the Japanese government has been playing a very delicate balance between the American pressure and Chinese pressure. Yeah, Akira, Japan seems to be way ahead of the curve on thinking about 
supply chain risk, supply chain analysis. I was on a research trip with some co-authors of a report on forging an alliance innovation base in October of 2019. And this was long before the pandemic spurred many places around the world to think about insulating their supply chains. Why do you think that is? Why do you think Japan was the first mover in this space? It really depends on who you talk to. Let's take the Japanese government, for example. I think METI have done a great job establishing subsidies for companies to diversify supply chains. And I think that the way they are framing it is great because they're not saying that these government subsidies are for promoting Japanese companies to decouple from China, right? They're saying that it is to diversify supply chains to deal with uncertainties, including COVID-19, and that they're also packaging it in a way so that it's an investment promotion policies towards Southeast Asia. So I think there's a delicate balance of the need to decouple while making sure that they don't antagonize China too much. At the same time, the amount of budget allocated to the supply chain diversification programs at the moment are minuscule at best. The budget is only about a few billion dollars for all industries in Japan. And if you compare this with what's being discussed in the U.S. at the moment, the semiconductor industry alone will likely receive a few dozen billion dollars. So once again, I think that MITI has done a great first step towards supply chain diversification, but they should try and get more budget for this. Now, there's also an increased interest in supply chain risk from the private sector as well. And I've been talking to many major companies from various industries, and many of them are all starting to engage in a serious cost-benefit analysis of potential decoupling from China. Of course, the reason for this decision is a bit different depending on the industry. For instance, high-tech industries are considering moving production away from China to elsewhere for security reasons, because they don't want their products to be seen as being potentially compromised. For others, such as apparel industries, their primary concern about supply chain risk is more about reputational damage. Recent reporting on forced labor programs in Xinjiang and Tibet have been problematic for Japanese companies like fast retailing, which runs uh, brands like Uniqlo, GU, and Theory, as well as companies like Muji do not want to be branded as a company that used forced labor to produce their products and thus indirectly contributing to human rights violations. And then you look yeah, at I'm... pharmaceutical companies and, uh, yeah, they're looking at diversifying supply chain away from a single country because of COVID-19. I remember they were uh, going around on Twitter not too long ago was, uh, I think it was Muji bragging about how their cotton came from the, the rolling hills of Xinjiang, which seems to be a little out of touch with where the world is going yep. today. So to be honest, I went on a session where I talked to some of the diet members from Japan uh, talking about this exact issue. And then this was uh, on YouTube live. And the Kyodo Tsushin actually reported about some of these issues. And then a few days later, Muji actually deleted the uh, name Xinjiang Cotton from their t-shirt. Now, it's still the same t-shirt, so it's still made from Xinjiang Cotton. But at least now you can see that they are being aware of the reputational damage caused by using these potentially human rights violation made products. Basically, my point here is that there are companies that have not begun considering these new supply chain risks brought about by security, economic, human rights, and COVID-19 yet. And there are companies that are already ahead of the curb. So there's really a gap in thinking within the Japanese society at the moment. So let's stay on the on the human rights and, and Xinjiang issues. You talked about there are some companies leaning more forward. Where do you think the, the government is on potentially taking some steps that we've seen in the US, in the UK, 
and in most recently in Canada on calling what's happening in Xinjiang genocide. So on this point, when you talk about the government, I think it's really important to distinguish between the executive branch and the legislative branch because we see two different um, visions here. So first, full disclosure, I'm an uh, economic security advisor for a group called Interparliamentary Alliance on China, or IPAC, which is a group of parliamentarians from 19 democratic countries and the EU parliament that is coordinating actions regarding policies towards China. And because of this, I have been working very closely with Japanese politicians on various activities that I'm about to discuss. So obviously, my explanation of these developments will be overwhelmingly positive. So please be aware of this uh, bias. So first, there's a group called the Japan Parliamentary Alliance on China, JPAC, which was created last year. And this is a non-partisan group of diet legislators from almost all major political parties in Japan. And uh, JPAC is closely working with IPAC. And they have been pushing for increased action in the diet to deal with human rights violations in China, whether it be Xinjiang or Tibet or Hong Kong or Inner Mongolia. And one of the new initiatives includes the proposal to establish a Japanese version of what's called the Magnitsky Act. Now, Magnitsky Act is an economic sanctions tool that countries such as US, UK, Canada, and EU have already established. And it allows for pinpoint sanctions such as asset freeze or visa restrictions on individuals and groups engaged in severe human rights violations. Japan currently doesn't have a formal sanctions mechanism regime that can be triggered for human rights violations. So JPAC has been pushing for establishment of a Japanese version of this Magnitsky Act. So once again, JPAC is a non-partisan movement, but there are actually changes in each of the political parties as well. The Liberal Democratic Party has just a couple of weeks ago created a project team on human rights diplomacy to discuss about the situation in Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Myanmar, and others. One of the opposing parties, the Democratic Party for the People, have also created a study group on human rights diplomacy and economic security, where they are discussing issues such as nudging Japanese companies to increase supply chain transparency through human rights due diligence, or Japan's potential entry into the genocide convention and then subsequently genocide determination of what's going on in Xinjiang, and also how Japan should deal with increasing international pressure to call for either boycotting or relocating the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics. So to summarize all of this, the Japanese government has in the past been prioritizing dialogue, and cooperation when dealing with human rights violations in other countries. But there are developments in the legislative branch that takes the view that in certain instances, dialogue and cooperation is not enough and that actions are necessary. And we are still in the midst of this potential shift in Japan's human rights diplomacy. So this is one area we should uh, really focus upon at the moment. I just wanted to add several points around the government approach and differences between U.S., U.K. and other countries. Akira-san's point on looking at the legislative branch is very important. I would say that some of the media coverage on the Japanese government's approach on this issue might have not been necessarily there in a way, if you actually look at the statements on MOFA or Mr. Kato, the, the press secretary in Japan, is actually saying and protesting against the movements at the right moment. It's just not necessarily covered in press. And also, I think Japan's historical kind of approach um, is not necessarily to always have vocal statements with the United States or UK and the other five countries, not just on Myanmar, but also on Hong Kong. But the Japanese government's stance is to, if I take their approach more positively, actually making concrete steps subtly. 
So it's not that Japan is not doing anything. If you broaden this debate, not just about human rights, but also about democracy promotion, which the United States and, and historically the democratic government has always tried to ask for Japan's increased contribution. One example I thought was interesting was Japan's effort in Cambodia, for instance, to promote democratic principles. The Japanese government has invited young Cambodian politicians to the Japanese diet to educate what the democratic、um, system looks like in, in Japan. Or there was this、um, ODA, I think, and JICA has really supported、um, Cambodia's civil law, for instance, development. So there are some grassroots, bottom up approach that Japan is taking towards these、um, universal values, which has not been very much, I think, reported even in Japanese media, but not in global media. My point is that the international community is moving much faster than what Japan is、uh, doing at the moment. For example, Japan doesn't have a Magnitsky law. US has it, UK has it, Canada has it, EU has it. If you look at export ban from Xinjiang, US has done it, Canada has done it, UK is considering, Australia is considering, Japan has not said anything. The business advisory given from the government, the US, UK, Canada, Australia, all of these companies. Our countries have basically said that look,、uh, if you're a company that has a potential trade relations or supply chains in Xinjiang, you should be careful about the legal, economic, and reputational damage. Basically, warning them to start thinking about decoupling from a Xinjiang region. Japanese government has not done genocide determination. US, Canada has done it. UK is、uh, considering a domestic law where a、uh, UK court can determine whether or not、uh, genocide is occurring or not. Japan has not started moving yet. I do agree that Japan has been slowly and、uh, surely working towards stronger democratic promotion, but the situation in the international community is moving much quicker than how Japan has been moving. So I think we're entering a new stage where Japan has really has to step up. So if all the Policies that Akira is lobbying for end up coming to pass. How much of a disconnect will this be from more traditional Japanese foreign policy over the past few decades? I guess I would say that the fact that these movements are coming from the legislative branch itself is a very different kind of policy formation in Japan. And I think it's also a good thing. I'll, I'll just add to on what Akira san has just mentioned about the necessity of Japan doing more. When, for instance, I talk with stakeholders in the US and Japan alliance,、um, is really Japan has been pushing for this free and open Indo Pacific vision, which basically calls for rules based order and norms. And it's supposed to be a value based construct. And I think what has been missing, and one of the criticisms、um, towards this, is really the lack of the promotion of democracy or human rights. And I think this is a good opportunity for Japan, and especially given that there's a lot of movements going on in the legislative、um, branch to think more about what Japan can maybe do and、um, to really say that this is a value based construct. Akira, what's going on with the Japanese government and export controls? If you look at the、uh, Japan's、uh, export control and investment screening laws, one of the unique points about Japanese law is that our export control、uh, law and investment screening law is one single law. So we, if we change this、uh, foreign currency law, then、uh, it Changes basically both Japanese export control and investment screening. And、uh, the Japanese government has been slowly but surely again shifting this export control investment screening laws to、uh, match with the current era of US China increased competition. For example, we have determined what are some of the、uh, critical technologies and critical industries where we have to make sure that higher scrutiny needs to be made with regards to the investment screening. This has included many of the pharmaceutical materials to deal with the、uh, increased. 
increased risk of COVID-19. So these are the new changes. Of course, they're not framing this as anti-China export controls or anti-China investment screening the United States. Both Export control and investment screening is basically a defensive mechanism for Japanese economic security, and it's not pinpointing certain countries like China. So once again, Japanese government is moving towards changing its uh, policies, but it's doing it in a way that effectively prevents Chinese uh, a potential threat from Chinese investment or export control. But in reality, they are framing it in a way so that it's not an anti-China move. One key thing um, that I wanted to feature what Japan's doing is thinking of tying this economic security issue with national security issues. As many of you probably know by now that um, Japan has set up its economic security division within the National Security Secretariat to think about these issues, including supply chain, but also about really identifying what are the the technologies that um, have dual-use implications that Japan needs to protect, and what kind of um, next steps is required for export control investment screening. And one of the things that Japan in, in the future needs to think about is technology outflow from academia critical and emerging technology area, for instance, that um, is heavily weighted outside of the more in the private sector, but more in the academic, for instance, is quantum technology. Tokyo University and Japanese academia is really leading on this space. It's it's very difficult for the government um, to and regulate the R&Ds and how the research is conducted in academia. For instance, another interesting episode I want to raise was on the top page of Yomiuri Shimbun this year. It's actually about the Thousand Talents Plan and how much Japanese researchers were involved in that. There are guidelines that uh-huh. are required for the Japanese academic institutions to um, submit to the METI, but it's not mandatory. And it seems like the number of institutions that have submitted is um, less than So in the U.S., we've seen prosecutions flowing out of this sort of thing. I assume that we haven't come to that stage yet with Japanese academia thinking about their connections to the mainland. Yes, I think it's not definitely United States is going further to really monitor the technological outflow. But I think Japanese um, government and academic landscape is not there yet. Another thing is that from Japan's historical past, Japanese academic institutions have made a statement that they will not receive funding from the defense ministry to conduct um, research that could lead to weapons development. Yeah, so in terms of the uh, institutional changes in Japan, I think it's important to note that this uh, economic division within the National Security Secretariat was established almost a year and a half ago, if you include the preparatory period. And they were supposed to be tasked with identifying some of the emerging technologies, dual-use technologies that needs to be regulated through export control and investment screening. But because of the COVID-19, the economic division has become like a COVID-19 response division. And that's why they haven't been able to really focus on determining the technologies. Of course, there was also talks about creating a national economic security strategy Uh, that kind of went away with COVID-19 as well. My hope is that uh, once COVID-19 starts to die down a little bit, the economic division at the NSS would go back to what it was originally intended to do, which is to start determining what technologies are the ones that really needs to be protected without needlessly banning uh, certain technologies that can be used for a private sector and for growing Japanese businesses. Akira, can't they just hire more people? Why can't they do two things at the same time? A lot of people don't want these sorts of policies to change. So I imagine you really need this sort of thing spearheaded from a pretty high level if you want to end up in a place where some private sector companies would end up very unhappy. 
If you look at this year's budget, there's actually an increase in four, four people at the National Secretariat, which is a pretty big thing in Japanese bureaucracy. And all of these four people seem to be going into the economic division, which is only one of the seven divisions. This is a very significant expansion in capacity in terms of the Japanese bureaucracy. So they are trying to do some things to expand its capacity. But at the same time, like you said, these kind of big projects need to be led from the very top. And my understanding is that Prime Minister Abe was very much interested in these economic security issues and pushing this as one of the main agenda. But Prime Minister Suga, to my understanding, is his, his focus is more on domestic politics, on COVID-19 responses for dealing with the Olympics and recently dealing with uh, various political scandals that has been popping up. And uh, I'm not in a position to say which stance is right, but at least with regard to economic security, one of the potential reasons why we haven't really seen much movement uh, for the last couple of months is because of Prime Minister Suga's prioritization of domestic politics issues. Yuka, I'm curious, as more and more innovative technology really worldwide flows from the private sector to the public sector instead of vice versa, as it may have in the past, how significantly do you see the the issues you outlined previously impacting Japanese competitiveness long term going forward? And what do you see as some potential solutions? I think that's a very important but a difficult question as well. Building on what Akira-san has mentioned about Prime Minister Suga focusing more on domestic issues. I think it's really relevant when we talk about the policies Japan is trying to adopt for innovation and what kind of investment it wants to make in critical technologies. As Akira-san just mentioned, the NSS was supposed to be tasked um, to identify these technology areas. And I think during the Abe administration, Japan, for instance, updated its integrated technology policy strategy, which identified key critical and emerging technology areas that the United States has also laid out. The Suga administration is basically continuing this approach and and it is investing. If you look at the budget, um, they are continuing to take steps towards their strategy. And it also appeared that um, the Suga administration has also focused on digital issues and investments in renewable technologies to meet the carbon neutral goals, which is very important and great. But I guess from my perspective and looking at digital issues, Japan's digital policy, Prime Minister Suga's digital policy is um, going going into the right direction in a way. There's a lot of bureaucratic steps that Japanese people needed to take, for instance. um, I don't know how much you're familiar with the hankos, but skipping all these bureaucratic um, bureaucratic paperwork in, in, it is very important in digitalizing everything. But it's more focused on digitalizing things and modernizing and legacy systems rather than investing on key technologies and IT services or building a Japanese Amazon or software companies, which is going to be the future of digital economy. So in that sense, I would say that there are lots of investments by Japanese businesses to digitalize its supply chain or just digitalize its workflow or factories and agriculture. But I think it's it's depends on current approach is not there yet to really build a strong software and on future economy in digital space. Let's talk a little bit about Japan-Taiwan relations. Sure. 
One important development regarding Taiwan and Japan recently is, of course, the Chinese ban on Taiwanese pineapples. China's official statement is that they needed to ban these imports of Taiwanese pineapples for biosecurity reasons. But to me, this is a stereotypical Chinese economic coercion against other countries, which we have seen in the past, like banning uh, wine from Australia or uh, canola oil from Canada or salmon from Norway, um, all done for various political reasons. And we now have a very very clear track record of China using import restrictions for political purposes. So I think that Japan, Taiwan, and other democratic countries should think about new ways to decrease the effectiveness of these Chinese economic measures and to deter China from employing them in the first place. And uh, for example, there are a couple of ways to do this. We can try as a group of countries to diversify our export reliance on China by buying off of each other or arranging some kind of an international mechanism to help those who are affected by politically motivated import ban, or maybe uh, create a domestic counter-boycott campaign that can be launched swiftly, like what Taiwanese did this time around. Yuka, if if China decides to pick like a meme thing to ban in terms of Japanese import, what's your bet on what you think they'll opt for? We've seen Australian wine, Taiwanese pineapples. What food company should be quaking in their boots in Japan? That's a difficult question, actually. Maybe I don't have a good answer. Maybe Akira-san, if you have. Uh, so when was this? Maybe 10 years ago, there was a frozen gyoza that Japan imported from China. And then there were like some safety issues. So maybe they can do that against us and say, oh, Japanese frozen gyoza is also from biosecurity reasons too, too dangerous or something. That would be... All right, so every, everyone in China now worried about their gyoza fix. Be sure to stop up, stock up now because you heard it here on China Talk first. <laughs> gyoza is going to be the first domino to fall in our coming East Asia trade war. Uh, Yuka, did you want to say anything else about Taiwan? Taiwan is becoming more and more important in discussions on economic security, including supply chains on conductors, but also as a like-minded partners um, promoting rules-based order. In terms of digital issues, I think it's also very important to include Taiwan on rules-making on data flow, for instance. This year, Japan is going to be the chair of the discussion to expand potential membership of CPTPP. So I think it's really important that we start thinking about how to include Taiwan and also to prevent Taiwan from becoming isolated in, in these international trade mechanisms. Recently, I have been invited to or have received information about many Japanese businesses thinking about doing simulations of business continuity plans uh, if and when the Taiwanese contingency occurs. And I think this is a very interesting trend because uh, in the past, I've been part of many uh, North Korean contingencies and how the Japanese businesses must work to evacuate their employees and families from South Korea if that happens. But I haven't seen too many of these uh, with regards to Taiwan. So I think this is one indication that many Japanese companies are now starting to be aware that perhaps China-Taiwan uh, confrontation is potentially possible. And when that happens, then there are many Japanese companies which have supply chains and factories in Taiwan. So they really have to start thinking about actual uh, tangible BCP plans. You had a great piece in Japan Times earlier this year talking about how Japan can help the UK meet the China challenge. And we've seen London reject Huawei 5G for their 5G rollout. We've seen discussions in London about responsibility for the people of Hong Kong. How do you think the UK's shifting threat perception on China will manifest in Indo-Pacific itself? And what role specifically do you see 
Japan playing in UK addressing the China challenge? So yes,、um, we have seen a tougher stance on China, especially driven by the conservatives politicians. So it's more of a political debate that has really changed over the past. Um, several years because of Hong Kong and COVID-19, but I think there's still some an- unanswered questions about how long this trend will continue, for instance, and how much is this UK's Indo-Pacific tilt is driven by this tough stance on China. And your second question was about what role Japan can play in addressing China challenge. So I would just mention that Japan has been playing a role over the past five years, really trying to inform Chinese assertive activities in the maritime space around the Senkaku Islands, the South China Sea, to the、um, British security community. And over time, there's a growing awareness, especially in the defense、um, policy community in the UK, that this is becoming a threat for a rules-based maritime order in the region, and that that also explains. Why UK is, for instance, sending the aircraft carriers、um, to the Indo-Pacific region and committing more to the security region. But at the same time, even while Japan was doing that, there was still this group and some government officials and, and business industries、um, that was very much trying to continue to engage with China for economic reasons. For Japan's、um, I, kind of memory, I think UK's participation in the AIIB, for instance, to be part of BRI was really a shocking moment、um, for Japan and really. Difficult for Japan to really trust UK as a partner to to deal with this China security challenges. But as I mentioned, these recent、um, years, because of this shift, political shift, there's a potential there. I will raise three points around this. So one, in terms of UK's involvement in, in the Pacific, I think UK. Is in the right direction of saying that UK needs to to tilt towards the Indo-Pacific, and I think we really need to wait until the integrated review to come out to see to what extent UK is going to prioritize the Indo-Pacific region and what it's going to do and what global Britain means for the Indo-Pacific. But it, it hasn't really addressed this challenge of capacity issues. If you look at、um, the stats, you'll see that because Brexit is happening, for instance, UK has allocated diplomatic posts in the Indo-Pacific region, including India and China, to Europe, and that trend will continue because UK will need to allocate some resources to do, continue to work with、um, European countries. And also, when we hear about UK's Indo-Pacific policy, I think one other areas that pop up in my mind is really this application for、um, CPTPP. So this also suggests that UK's Indo-Pacific engagement is it could be motivated more from commercial interests. And I think my third point is that in order, maybe a role that Japan can play is really to have more dialogues about how strategically that Japan can include UK in the region. And because right now the UK is not necessarily involved in the rules making or the free and open Indo-Pacific concept, and to engage in the region more strategically to, to counter、um, China's growing influence. So I think that's an area that Japan needs to work on. I think Yuka covered the、uh, situation in UK、uh, comprehensively. So I'm just going to add that in terms of Japan-EU cooperation or Japanese cooperation with other European countries, I personally think that Germany is really the key. Especially if you look at economic security issues, you have to team up with countries that actually has、uh, emerging. Technologies, fundamental technologies, and from the European side, UK is important, France is important, but I think Germany is critical. I think it's critically important for other reasons as well. If you look at Germany with regards to the 5G rollout, I think the German 
government has now flip-flopped four or five times with regards to whether or not they're going to allow Huawei or not because of political issues, because of various factors. But I think if there's anything that Japan can do to nudge Germany toward more of the Japan-US-Indo-Pacific side rather than to the Chinese side, then there should be a lot of things that Japan can do diplomatically. Yuka, in your double-I-double-S piece with you and Graham, you mentioned that Australia's strategic interest in the potentially forthcoming reciprocal access agreement between Australia and Japan lies in drawing out the SDF's presence in the region rather than in Australia military access to Japan itself. Um, Looking at this from both Canberra's perspective, but also from Tokyo's perspective, how much do you think the instability from the United States over the past four years has affected the the calculus on this agreement. Their closing relations with Australia or closing Japan's you know closing relationship with UK is really a sign, uh, not just because Japan is trying to establish bilateral ties to hedge against the relationship with um, United States, but more of an effort to really try to enhance networking between the US alliances in the region, because partly because the United States under the Trump administration has not necessarily showed demonstrated leadership role in the, to create a rules-based order in the region. So it was more of a Japan's proactive effort to um, really make sure that the like-minded partners are, are aligned. And so I wanted to come back to this side on Prime Minister Abe's concept of the free and open the Pacific. I, I would say that th- there's this probably three very important aspect here. One is that this concept of the, this value-based construct was really to create a vision to to alternative vision to kind of China's assertiveness in the in the region and, and to m- maintain the rules based on economic and, and political and diplomatic order, security order. But also second is really to keep the United States committed to the region. So it's an inclusive concept and eventually it, it's an Indo-Pacific concept. So included India and with the re- personal relationship that Prime Minister Abe had with Prime Minister Modi did include India, Southeast Asia, and now UK and European countries are interested in this concept. But, but it always, Japan's really key goal here was to keep the United States committed in the region. And I think that was one of the successful, I think, achievements under Prime Minister Abe, that by having this concept, although there wasn't an explicit leadership from the United States, the, the, Japan was able to bring together all these like-minded partners to discuss about the region. And I, I guess the third point I already mentioned, that this relationship, strong relationship with Australia, really also helped Japan to reinvigorate the, the quad cooperation, which was more associated with security notion, to broaden it to include economic issues, including discussing about supply chain resiliency. I'm also a big supporter of uh, increased uh, increased cooperation between Japan and Australia. Australia has great cybersecurity companies, and I've actually brought many Japanese companies to Canberra maybe two or three years ago and had this uh, big cybersecurity private sector Japan-Australia cooperation at ASPI, ASPI, and uh, it was really great. I'm currently also trying to push some uh, private sector uh, cooperation between Japan and Australia, and I hope that we can comprehensively increase more cooperation at both public sector level and private sector level because really Japan-US alliance is strong, US-Australia alliance is strong, so we really have to strengthen Japan and Australia's partnership. Yuka, what should uh, what should the world, what, what should listeners know about Japan and 5G? I think one interesting area for Japan and, and UK cooperation, uh, maybe to maybe counter China's spread of Chinese 5G initial technology is 
really this um, commitment to um, Open RAN, which is a disaggregated and open architecture of 5G, which could be an alternative cost-effective solution um, for 5G in third countries. Japan is like the first country to commit to this, um, but the UK is probably the second country to commit to it. And the fact that um, UK operators, for instance, operate in Africa or Middle East, which the Japanese vendors do not necessarily operate, really um, adds values, I think, for Japan's ongoing effort with the United States to fund affordable digital infrastructure in third countries. I think one of the challenges, though, is that although U.S. and Japan has uh, comprehensive mechanisms like the Policy Dialogue and Internet Economy or Working Group under the Free and Open to Pacific Cooperation, I think U.K. and Japan currently doesn't really have a director general level policy mechanisms that could help think beyond the U.K. market, but how to cooperate in Africa or Middle East. And I think that's a real opportunity that hasn't been really discussed. So on the 5G issue, recently uh, a Huawei PR manager contacted me saying that he wanted to have a talk with me. I went out and had a nice lunch with him, but I thought this was really interesting because he kept talking about how, if you look at Huawei and Japan relations, it's Huawei buying from Japan more than Japan uh, buying from Huawei. So Huawei is actually really good for Japan. He was also making the case that uh, for some of the 5G hardware, uh, perhaps if the Japanese businesses and Japanese government is more concerned about Huawei's security issues or potential political risks, then Japan can buy those parts which doesn't store data. And uh, he was making a legitimate point, but uh, I thought it was really interesting that Huawei is reaching out to many of the Japanese academics to say that, look, if you need any information, we are very transparent. We are happy to have you come to our uh, headquarters in both China and Tokyo. So let's continue our conversation. Yeah. Full, full disclosure, Akira, what was the meal? It, was, it wasn't Chinese. It was uh, Italian. And it was a lunch. So yeah, it was like a, a fish, uh, meat, salad, all of the full course. The view was nice as well. Uh, I have not had that happen to me. I'm not sure there's too much outdoor dining going on in the, our 30 dirty New York City weather. I think I'm going to preemptively say no for that for that <laughs> invite, but whatever. You know, no, I, I think that the communication and conversation is important. This is what the hungry academic will tell himself. <laughs> some some uh, call it winding thanks. and dining. Some call it communication and exchange. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, anything, reports, books, movies, relevant or completely not relevant to uh, the topics we've, we've come across today. What have you guys been enjoying recently? I'm trying to think of the last movie I watched, which is probably like a year and a half ago. <laughs> No, I really noticed that uh, because I no longer travel, I don't have time to watch movies anymore. I guess that's a difficult um, question. Usually this is an easy one. All right, fine. We can skip it. <laughs> uh, you could do an album. Jordan, what is, what's your of, answer? Any piece of content. The Chinese rapper AR is mine. I'm rediscovering him. I, I first listened to him maybe a year and a half ago, but now my Chinese is better. And he is... For my money, the best lyricist in the game. He has lots of funny little jokes. And unlike many Chinese rappers, he understands how to mix up his flow in a way that keeps his verses particularly interesting. So I guess I now have to end this episode with another one of his songs. He did. He was on the ABC song from, from maybe two weeks ago. So that's what I've, I've gotten. I've been excited about recently. Hmm. Can you sing us a phrase or two? You know, it was, it was funny, Akira. <laughs> so I've been trying to learn it like <laughs> just as practice, but it's so hard that I, you, you, there are like these KTV apps where you can sing into the apps and make videos. I had to s play it at half speed in order to be able to rap along ah. to the song. 
part. No, but uh, yeah. I think that if you can rap in a language, then you really mastered that language. Um, <laughs> to be honest, uh, whenever I go to karaoke, uh, I tried rapping in Eminem to practice my English, but uh, I've stopped doing so because it's just too humiliating. Pay money for that, Akira. If you were live streaming uh, Eminem raps, I would uh, throw you a few coins on whatever your, your preferred live stream platform. So for that, you have to come to Tokyo. Fair enough. So since I recorded this podcast, uh, AR unfortunately put out a pro Xinjiang Cotton H&M diss track. He's in the doghouse for me at the moment. What follows are absolutely fantastic Japanese rap songs, including one by a rapper named Hideyoshi. Not sure you can get a cooler rap name than that. Anyways, enjoy. <laughs> しとけるマジな話マジな話マジな話大屈だ首が出るみたいなワンナスみたいなワンナスみたいなワンナス古さたまらくオレは曲を書くチャリコギスギツルドフランス東京からトビタツナリタカハネダお金の雨をフラス今もあいかわらず俺のこと、オッケー。しした人たちにもはや興味がねえし、あまり気にしない。だから平気だけど、うざいのはうざい。いや、うざいのはうざい。そう、レイナッツ、そう、レイツ、ネリマンシンソウ